One of the first steps in a murder investigation is to collect all fingerprints and potential DNA from the scene and to compare those fingerprints and bodily fluids with those from everyone known to have been present at the scene at the time proximate to the crime. We know that today, more than 10 months after the murders, this preliminary and simple task has not yet been completed. Aside from failing to complete the standard protocol of fingerprint elimination, the police also missed at least 25 palm or fingerprint impressions that were discovered by our private team at the scene once the house had been turned over to us after more than six weeks of police presence. Needless to say, the failure to follow simple procedures regarding print elimination again fell well below best practice standards, which should have been observed. That is lawyer Brian Greenspan laying out a myriad of complaints against the Toronto police uh, at a press conference giving an update 10 months after the murders of Honey and Barry Sherman, who were found strangled and tied up in the pool area of their Toronto home. And today, the team of lawyers and detectives hired by the Sherman family, um, and you will recall they hired this team because they were so outraged that the case had been designated a murder-suicide almost instantly. And the team has a number of retired homicide officers, as well as Mr. Greenspan, And they didn't disclose a lot of sensitive evidentiary information, but they certainly made it clear they did not agree with the direction that the Toronto police were going with this case and that the conclusion they came to was a failure, that they failed to treat the crime scene as it should have been from the moment the bodies were discovered. And Mr. Greenspan said it was very clear from the moment that the couple was found that it was murder. And so he spared no niceties, saying that they should have followed simple, obvious processes and that they didn't cause the family a lot more pain than they should have gone through. Let's bring in David Perry. He is the CEO over at Investigative Solutions Network Incorporated. He's also got uh, 30 years on uh, Toronto police as a homicide detective. Hello there. Good evening, Alex. All right. So you were clearly watching the press conference this afternoon. It was a good hour long um, conference. What was your what was your takeaway or your feeling about it? Well, I almost felt like uh, what was pre- being presented by this private team was in in conflict with, with what they were telling everybody they intended to do. You know, they were saying that they weren't there to um, contaminate the Toronto police investigation and that they were working in a spirit of cooperation and confidentiality yet at the same time they're holding a public press conference and being highly critical of the efforts of the Toronto police and the methods that they were used and then I just found that uh, rather striking and rather interesting. Okay so let's start with with some of the allegations that they laid out Um, you know kind of saying that from the very get-go they did not do what would have or should have been done um, because as you will recall on that December night and you know it came out fairly soon on a Friday night where the police said there's no reason uh, to be concerned you know security is not an issue and so it was reported that they believed that this was a self-contained situation and from there Brian Greenspan then said it took a good month and them hiring their own team doing their own you know pathology their own kind of detective work to determine that it was in fact a double murder and that's why the police then changed their mind yeah and, I, and I'm not so sure that that's the case I mean 
clearly um, whoever was first on scene, and it was a divisional level investigation at the time, um, made an assessment. And if we believe everything that we've heard, they've made an improper assessment that perhaps it was either a double suicide or a, a murder suicide. Uh, but regardless of the case, uh, the homicide squad was notified and attended and uh, monitored the case closely. And at the appropriate time, they took the case over. So, I mean, it, it certainly had some uh, issues getting out of the gate. But uh, the reality is the, the house was protected. The crime scene was protected. And uh, eventually, the uh, you know, when the forensic units finally released it some six weeks later, the homicide squad at some point did come forward and, and say that they were looking at the case as a double murder. So, uh, you know, I don't see this to be the, the, as big an issue as um, as this private team is making it out to be. Um, I'm not saying that they're wrong in, in the fact that perhaps the, the information went out a little too quick about the opinion, but the process that followed is is clearly one that would get us to the same results anyways. They did talk about the fact that they, they were not undermining a police investigation in any way and went uh, as far as saying that they're willing to share the information. They had wanted to meet with police. I think they met in May at some point, but um, at this point they said the police are not willing or wanting to work with them. But should they? I mean, well, would that not be a conflict of interest? It, it's, a, it's, it's potentially a conflict of interest, and it's also very problematic because whatever information the police are in possession of, and that includes anything that this private team uh, turns over to them, becomes part of their evidence package, which under the rules of disclosure has to be given to the defense counsel if there's an arrest and these people or or the person responsible is being represented. So uh, I'm not sure that I would want to take somebody else's information under these circumstances. If I was the lead investigator on this homicide, I would want to have my team do their work independent of, of this kind of activity and, of course, do all the things that we normally do in a homicide investigation and make our own determinations. And then you sort of uh, live and die by your own process, and those processes are, are highly reviewed. And, of course, they, they are under the most extraordinary scrutiny once you go to court. And the last thing you need is somebody else's information that you didn't even develop, that you may or may not even agree with to be part of your package that you then have to defend. So, yeah, I find that very uh, problematic, and I think it's a huge conflict of interest. I mean, I know they do it down in the United States sometimes. Uh, you know, they do things much differently in the United States. It's it's interesting how today we get in like an hour every bit of information about a suspect. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're so guarded with information here in Canada, so we don't really know a lot about this particular investigation, and it's been 10 months. But do you ever see uh, that kind of system coming in where people could have, um, you know, their own teams and somehow that uh, the police would work with other streams? Yeah, absolutely. If it's, if it's set up and established and there are policies and procedures and protocols put in place, I, I can see that happening. It's It's one of the hot topics with the Canadian Chiefs of Police about private and public policing working together. And, and in a lot of cases, and it's not in every firm, but in some investigative firms, uh, there there is the ability to work cooperatively with the police. Um, through my firm, I've done it many, many times, mm-hmm. but only if the police agree and only if we've established some kind of a middle ground. But certainly, um, um, you know, we're, we're going to be uh, on a one-way highway in terms of information, everybody has to understand that you would have to you, you have to lay out the rules first. You have to have the rules first, and if there's something we can tell the police that 
that would assist an investigation, then I think we actually have a duty to do that. <clears throat> On the other hand, um, to, to be holding press conferences and to be uh, offering up rewards that aren't in agreement or connection with the with the police investigation, then that can be a problem as well. And I'll talk about the yeah. the reward for a moment. That's a lot of um, money. Have you ever seen a have we had a reward that big in Canada? I don't think we have, not, have we? Not that I know. I've never heard of a reward even close to this amount of money. Because that can uh, ca- that can be a, a I mean they've got a twenty four hour seven day a week hotline now set up. Ten million bucks is going to get an awful lot of phone calls, but from a lot of a lot of kooks. Yeah, and I thought I thought the chief was very kind in his response to the reward, and and uh, you know here's here's the thing that I'm wondering, and I I don't know the the answer, but uh, any time that I worked a case where somebody came forward and wanted to offer a reward, mm-hmm. um, in most of the cases that I work, I can recall that there was good conversation, and usually because of the stage of the investigation, we asked them to hold off on the reward. So with rewards, it's not just about the amount of money and. It's not just about throwing everything out there to advance the case. It's about the timing of the reward. And sometimes the timing of a reward can be pr- problematic as well. If you and, and rewards are typically used when you've run right out of right out of steam and, mm-hmm. and the case is starting to go cold and, and you truly need something to, to shake the case up and potentially help you get that piece of evidence to help you solve it. And I'm not I don't know and I'm not sure that the Toronto Police investigation is at at that stage. So uh, personally, I would prefer, it, as a lead investigator, to have control over even things like the timing of releasing a reward. Yeah, because I, w- I have to think then that would be very problematic for the Toronto police because all the information is going to continue going to the other team instead of to the Toronto team, and it really kind of stacks them against each other. Yes, and I, I could tell you that um, you know when you do a, a major investigation like this, the the number of uh, let's just say false leads, and I don't mean yeah. in, a, in a criminal way, but the, the amount of information that comes in that you have to mm-hmm. vet and validate can be extremely overwhelming, can actually obstruct you and take cause you even a, a more significant amount of time to get to the point sure. of, of trying to identify. It's all about elimination, right? You yeah. go through your, your massive list of persons of interest, and you work towards, as quickly as possible, eliminating all of the obvious people that uh, you don't really need to be overly concerned about. And at the end of the trail, there's a very small group of people that you intensely focus on. And quite often, that's exactly where your suspect lies, right in that small group. So if you compound that by offering a warrant, uh, sorry, an an award at the wrong time or a reward at the wrong time, uh, you could then be inundated with tips that you now have to work on yep. that will dis- distract you from the key piece of work that you're working on at that time. Not to so mention, time, this, and this will come in from around the world, because who doesn't want $10 million bucks? So that that's an enormous amount of time to spend checking every lead. That's an enormous amount of time, and I, I think uh, the lawyer even referred to psychics calling, and i got to tell you, <laughs> yeah. uh, some of the high-profile cases I did, yep. I had to hang up on people yeah. because you would get psychics calling in and telling you where to find, you know, evidence and where to find bodies. And I had, you know, even even uh, America's uh, America's Most Wanted. Mm-hmm. I remember mm-hmm. getting pressure from them to come come on their show on a case that I worked on. And when I said no, they said, well, we're going to go public with the fact that you're not cooperating with us. And I said, well, that's nice. I, I think you've got this backwards. Yeah, you're in the wrong country. Yeah. <laughs> you're in the wrong country, and it's you that's supposed to be cooperating with us. So. Uh, we just agree to disagree on that point. And, and yet on another case, they asked me to go, and I thought, you know, I could use all the help I could get, especially something being broadcast throughout the world. So, yes, I went on I went on the show a, 
you know, I rolled the dice, and at the end of the day, I got exactly what I thought I would get on that particular case, which was not one tip <laughs> yeah. resulting out of that case. So, you know, we've got to put some faith in the police that they know the timing of these things, and they, they know the sensitivity of these things, and that they're going to continue to peel back the layers of this case and hopefully get to a conclusion. And, and we always have to remember, not every homicide gets solved. I hope that's not the case here. But, uh, you know, there's an awful long road before they get to that point. Yeah, very hard on the family, but nonetheless. Very hard on yeah. the family. Um, well, I appreciate your insight. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. That is Dave Perry joining us uh, with his insight because uh, he's done these cases. He knows these cases. And sometimes they do take a long time. Sometimes they get, like, look at the states. What, two days? This is a different kind of case. No question. I, I feel for uh, Mark Saunders, Chief Saunders, on this one because he's been put in a terrible, terrible position on this thing. This is On Point on Global News Radio.